Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Jeremy Shapiro and I'm substituting this week for Mark Leonard. Poor substitute, no doubt, but I'll do my best. And what we're going to talk about this week is how Europeans might react in the event of post-election chaos in the United States, which is a subject near and dear to my heart. So I'll be very interested to see uh, what Europeans might do. I'm happy to welcome four brilliant speakers to talk about this topic. First, we have Anna Kuchenbecker, who worked at the Aspen Institute in Germany and lived for 13 years in Washington, D.C., and is now our director, our senior director of strategic partnerships. Sorry, Anna, don't want to unsenior you. Next, we have a member of the European Parliament and the former foreign as well as defense minister of Poland, Radek Sikorski, and of course, an ECFR council member. Then we have ECFR's deputy director and head of the SOFIA office, Cecilia Cherneva, who also actually worked at the Bulgarian embassy in the U.S. and various other positions related to U.S. relations. And then we're going to have uh, Pierre Villemont, who's the former executive secretary general of the External Action Service and formerly French ambassador to the United States. So thank you all very much for joining. We discussed in a previous podcast the possible things that Trump might do in the election that might throw the, or, or that just might happen, that might throw the election into a little bit of chaos. And so with election day coming closer, we wanted to discuss how Europe could respond if there is no clear winner on election day, which is, you know, I don't think likely, but a definite possibility. And we might see to a degree, as we did in 2000, a prolonged study over the presidency playing out certainly in the courts and possibly even in the streets. A lot of people believe that this is not an unlikely scenario. Coronavirus means that enormous number of voters in the U.S., 40 million and counting as of today, are opting to vote early and by mail. And these votes take a lot longer count. They raise the prospect of a period without a clear winner. There is also this phenomenon that they're calling in the United States uh, variously the red mirage or the blue shift, which occurred in the 2018 election in some specific congressional districts where the Republicans appeared to win on election night. But as the absentee ballots, which tend to wait toward Democrats, were counted over the next few days, Democrats won. And this phenomenon has emboldened Donald Trump to encourage Donald Trump to say that he's not necessarily going to accept the election results and to call on an army of supporters to observe the polls and to contemplate all sorts of court challenges and even to contemplate asking Republican controlled state legislatures to overturn the results of the election and send a different slate of electorates electors to elect the president. On the other side, uh, the Democrats are preparing for this and uh, forming a, a group under the slogan, protect the results, is ready to mobilize and take to the streets. Donald Trump refuses to affect, accept elections. Obviously, this is a U.S. affair, but it has enormous impacts on Europe and the world. So let's, Radek, let's start with you. What would it mean for Europeans if this scenario became a reality and we saw a post-election chaos in the U.S.? Well, I think it would be another nail in uh, the coffin the assumption of American competence. Uh, it has already been uh, questioned by the financial crisis, by WikiLeaks, by the fia various fiascos in Iraq, by the pandemic. But we thought that a constitution that has uh, stood the test of 200 years was actually clear and that American democracy was an example to follow. If there is chaos, then that will be questioned. For the first time, I think we will be watching closely what international observers 
will be reporting, and the OSCE mission is already there on the ground. I'm wondering if you could sort of take up on that. You know, one has the impression, at least I do, living in Europe, that Europeans are sort of waiting for the, the U.S. election. It seems like every political decision over the last couple of months has been sort of delayed or preparing to wait for the U.S. election. Is, is this right? And what, what would it mean if, if there isn't a result, if there is no clear result? You're right, but I think at the end of the chaos, uh, light will come up and uh, there will be a result at the end of the day. I, I tend to agree with what Radek was saying, but at the same time, we've had the experience of the presidential election of 2000. You remember the Gore-Bush confrontation, the vote in, in Florida. At the end, there was a solution. It was the Supreme Court, I guess, who made the final verdict. And I think uh, something of the same will happen again. But it may happen only after a very long period of uncertainty, of chaos. This may happen. I think one of the uh, elements that need to be watched carefully is what will happen not only on the presidential election itself, but also on the other election, the Congress election. Because if there one sees a big blue wave, I think they may have an impact on the presidential elections. It will be difficult for Trump's side, the Republican side, to pretend that Trump has won if one sees a huge success for the Democrats in Congress, namely in the, uh, in the House, but also in the Senate. We need to look at the whole picture. So maybe at the end of the day, I will remain more optimistic about American democracy. Well, thanks, Pierre. I appreciate that uh, degree of optimism. It's uh, in short supply these days. Not sure I share it, but I appreciate it. Anna, what about you? First of all, I think it's important that there is a difference to 2016. And uh, I think this chaos that we are talking about, you know, is likely to happen if the race is tight. And I think what is different in 2016 is that Joe Biden is in the lead, also in the swing states and in a more comfortable lead than that was the case with Hillary Clinton. And I think it's absolutely likely that there will be protests and upheaval if we think of, you know, that Donald Trump contested an election that he won. So what is he going to do with an election that he loses? But I think it's also, you know, from a European perspective, I think there are provisions in the US Constitution so that it's pretty clear who is running the country. So from November 4th till noon of January 20th, that's the sitting president. Then as of noon, January 20th, it's the newly elected president. And if the situation is unclear, it will be the Speaker of the House, uh, who would then be Nancy Pelosi. You know, I think, you know, from a diplomatic standpoint, you know, who to turn to, that's clear. And I would hope that, you know, in terms of that Europeans would refrain from taking sides prematurely or offering congratulations and, and exercise restraint until, you know, that it has been decided. Wow, President Pelosi would be an unexpected result from this election. I guess what I'm struggling with, though, in listening to all of you, is what the impact of this would be on Europe. I mean, obviously, it would be the reality show of all time, and so I'm sure Europeans would be glued to their television sets just like Americans. But would it have any impact on Europe? Vesla, what do you think? Would it matter to, the, to Europeans at all? I mean, as Radek said, the perception for America is the beacon of democracy is something extremely important, uh, especially for those of us in uh, Central and Eastern Europe in the past decades. And I don't mean the past three decades only. I actually mean 
all along since the beginning of the Cold War. So having America hit the bottom in terms of the quality of its democracy, if it cannot really perform an election, would not be a pleasant thing to watch for us also, I think, domestically, because a lot of that... I don't want to see it either, but is it fundamentally different than 2000 in your view? I think it is. I mean, look, the style, the level of polarization, it can easily copy these days. And I have been hearing this here as well uh, at home, people saying why if the American television debate, presidential debate can look the way the first one looked, why can we not bully people and treat people the same way here? Why would that be politically incorrect? And I think this whole notion of what is allowed and what is not allowed in a representative democracy has become really very problematic because the standard is uh, going very low. And I'm frankly very worried about it because having elections is a very simple, basic thing for a democracy to exist. I think, you know, the essence of dealing with something like this is preparation. Mark Twain used to say that people always complain about the weather, but no one ever does anything about it. And sort of dealing with American democracy sort of feels like the same thing. There has been actually, if you're reading the the U.S. media, quite a bit of preparation for this scenario. A big contrast with 2000. Certainly the Democrats and the Republicans in the U.S. media really are preparing. Global banks are hedging against potential chaos. Facebook and Twitter have uh, put down all sorts of exceptional measures where they're not going to report results, something less under certain very predefined circumstances. And various cities are preparing for the possibility of civil unrest and even violence. But I don't, I'm not sure I see any preparations in Europe. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, or maybe there's just nothing to prepare for. But I'm wondering, are Europeans prepared for uh, an unclear result? Are they gaming out this scenario? I mean, let's just go through the various countries that you're in. And uh, do you see anything like this in Germany? Well, as I said, Jeremy, I would be hoping that the German government would exercise restraint until the results are clear as set out by the process. So, But I, I think, of course, the majority of Germans is hoping for a Biden presidency. I think there are definitely parts in or, or groups in Germany kind of who have this mixed feelings towards the U.S. Maybe there is some feeling of schadenfreude so that American democracy, the beacon of the hill, is kind of not showing that, you know, so there was no reason for American exceptionalism or the the shiny beacon on the hill. But I think overall, Germans are definitely hoping for a Biden presidency and uh, I I guess don't have many ideas how to deal with a second Trump term. I'll take schadenfreude as a lack of preparation. (laughs) Yes. You know, for building on Anna's point about hoping for restraint, I think, Pierre, this sort of maybe will remind you of some of your EAS days. Are Europeans prepared to decide when to, uh, in a sort of joint and unified fashion, you decide, uh, start to congratulate, start to sort of say that there is a, a winner? They have a, a mechanism so that they can not look like Poland is congratulating Trump and France is congratulating Biden or something like that? I think Europeans will remain very cautious if we observe the kind of chaos uh, we're talking about, because otherwise it would be uh, interfering with American domestic politics, and I think no one wants to do that. What usually happens in normal uh, circumstances is that, first of all, they all congratulate the winner and then jump in an airplane try to, to be the first in Washington uh, to start uh, contact with whoever is there in 
the uh, transition team or something of that sort. So I think from a practical point of view, if we, um, if we have to wait for a long time, this kind of trip to Washington will have to wait. And I think the Europeans will wait. Whether they will be able to restrict themselves and keep a united position at this, I'm not so sure. Uh, but I think it will be a cautiousness on, on all sides once again, because uh, nobody wants to interfere into uh, an electoral process every time we learn more about it becomes more and more complicated to understand because it's not only about Washington, as you know very well, uh, Jeremy. It's about each state in this uh, great continent that will decide on its own. What I always find quite striking with uh, the American electoral system is that the only centralized way of uh, counting the votes is through uh, the media, associated press, uh, bulletins or something of that sort. In face of such a complex electoral process, nobody, I think, in Europe really wants to interfere. Radek, is this scenario discussed in Poland at all? Is there an approach to it? I'm afraid I have to disagree with the colleagues because I don't think it makes sense to talk about the Europeans or even the Germans or the French. I have French and German colleagues in the European Parliament who are rooting for Trump. And in Poland, the uh, state-controlled media is not just rooting for Trump, it is actually taking part in some of the provocations against Joe Biden. There is this of supposedly damaging Hunter Biden emails. And the guy releasing those emails is actually a Polish-American, former advisor to the current government. And the president of Poland is even uh, passing on his Twitter feed some of this conspiracy stuff. And the Polish government, of course, wants Trump to win because it is uh, so far to the right that even Trump's ambassador to Poland is being denounced as a lefty. So does that imply that if Trump declared himself the winner, that the Polish government would be on the phone congratulating him? I wouldn't entirely exclude it because apart from anything else, they are not as professional as Pierre suggests, namely to wait and then jump on the plane once you're sure. They are so ideological and so carried by the ideological culture war that they might jump the gun. And I think Poland is not the only one. Hungary, I think, also is rooting for Trump. And then, of course, Europe is bigger than just the European Union. I think President Putin will have fun whatever happens. If uh, Trump wins, that's great. If, if he loses, r- remember, uh, Donald Trump has already hinted that he might have to leave the country. Well, I bet you he will uh, search for a country with no extradition treaty with the United States. And uh, I think President Putin would have a lot of fun offering him a Nouveau-Rich v- villa in the Crimea in which to, uh, to be given asylum. Sure, he could become Edward Snowden's roommate. Nesla, I'd like to hear like how this is seen in Bulgaria, but I think also sort of carry through Roddick's scenario. If Poles and Hungarians are doing that kind of thing, how does the EU and other EU countries react? What, what do they do in that, in that case? Well, I, I'm afraid this will be the beginning of a very big split in the EU. And frankly, this is why I think Trump's re-election is going to be much more dangerous for the European Union than many anticipate. Not simply because he doesn't like it and he prefers to be antagonistic uh, towards it, but just because by 
the, the, the election of Trump, we may really end up with a bunch of countries who will not only run to congratulate him and to get on the plane, on the phone and whatever they can do as, as soon as possible, but also because this will mean probably the end of the discussion about European sovereignty. They will be most probably uh, French and other countries' reaction against that. And I remember very well the split in Europe in 2003 around the Iraq war, which right now may even look as a very small thing compared to what we can see this end of this year. And the, the freedom fries kind of sentiment also can be reborn again. I'm, I'm reminding here of that big symbolic split, which culminated in the French president back then saying that some Eastern Europeans should use the opportunity to keep their mouth shut. There, you seem a bit isolated in your optimism. Uh, I'm wondering if, you're, if you can sort of, you see the sort of impact is talking about in the scenario that Roddick was spinning out and and even the potential for violence in the streets is there is there any is there any point at which you think the EU needs to sort of try to form a position and needs to try to create a sort of deal with that potential uh, activism from some of its members I find striking in the reaction of uh, all of us is that you can say you can go in both directions. I'm, I'm quite struck also by a lot of comments uh, which are saying if Trump is re-elected, this is the best opportunity for the Europeans to unite and start moving uh, towards a more united uh, security policy or whatever. So I, I think you can see you can see it both ways. If we just stick to the uh, short-term uh, vision of a chaotic uh, electoral process and a still undecided electoral decision. It seems to me, I still think that Europeans maybe will prefer to wait and see. Of course, they're pretty much divided and they are just as polarized with regard to Trump as um, it is the case in, in America. Uh, but still, it seems to me if you're not um, American and if you're wise enough um, uh, to look at the long term, uh, you prefer to wait a little bit before getting any kind of final and formal decision on the American side. Now, if we go into a further chaos, and as you're saying, Jeremy, there is violence in the streets. Here again, my impression is that Europeans will prefer to uh, keep uh, quiet. Under the whole uh, Black Lives Matter movement and the uh, anti-fascist movement on the other side, what struck me is that the Europeans have been mostly observing the situation and not trying to get involved into that uh, internal confrontation in in, in America. And it seems to me that the same thing more or less should happen in the case there is strong controversy about the result of the U.S. election. Thanks, Pierre. Um, I guess it is always a reasonably safe prediction to predict in action. So I suppose you're probably uh, right. I think we just have one thing left to do. It's been a fascinating conversation, a little bit depressing, but I think we can we can sort of remind ourselves at the end that we can hope that there will be a clear winner of the election. And personally, I think that it's more likely than not that these scenarios won't come to pass, but I, I, I guess they are certainly a possibility and it would be nice to think that we were prepared.
But the one thing we have left to do is the is what we call the bookshelf section, which is where we ask all of our participants to tell us what they're reading, what's on their bookshelf. I think our readers would be interested in what you're reading. So uh, let's start with Anna. What's on your bookshelf? I'm currently reading a book by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, and it's called Cynical, meaning critical theories, how activist scholarship made everything about race, gender, and identity, and why this harms everybody. And this uh, book explains the intellectual genesis of identity politics and social justice activism and its roots in postmodernism and how its uh, concepts like uh, language as violence, there is no biological sex, cultural appropriation creation, intersectionality, and how this has seeped from academia into public discourse. Lovely, that sounds cheery. Okay. <laughs> Radek, what's on your bookshelf? I've just finished Orlando Feige's uh, History of the Crimean War. The uh, 19th century Crimean War. Yes. Okay. Don't tell us who won. Vesla, what's on your bookshelf? I actually want to to mention a book that has something to do with our discussion. It's a book that Daniel Fried wrote. It's about the U.S. and Central Europe in the American century. And it reminds also of that period that we were talking about uh, from 2000 onwards. I think those testimonies are an interesting read. Interesting. Daniel Fried was a former assistant secretary for Europe and ambassador to Poland, and it's a really brilliant observer. Exactly. A very much a Central European American, yes. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, Pierre, what's on your bookshelf? I am rereading uh, Philip, Philip Ross' novel, The Plot Against uh, America, because I thought it was important to read that again and uh, refresh my memory uh, before we get into the chaos uh, you're talking about. <laughs> Oh, so you actually are preparing, Pierre. I'm very impressed. Uh, okay, thanks, everybody. I think that's all we're going to do today. But if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give us five stars on your favorite podcast platform. We will put a link to all the publications, all the bookshelf publications that were just mentioned on our website. But for now, from Anna Kuchenbecker, Radek Sikorsky, Vesla Cherneva, Pierre Vimont, and myself, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Hapenthal, and our editor is Julia Bazzano. Mm-hmm.